You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie and Marty Gibson joins me now for Media Matters. Busy old morning this morning, Marty. I had Trevor on first. We talked about Greens and, and communism in China. And then you just caught the lovely ladies from New Zealand first, Kirsten, Erica and Casey. Yep. Some really interesting stuff there, I thought, from them, particularly around what people don't necessarily realise. Like one of the things that Erica talked about is the policies that they bought in 2017 that people just naturally assumed were Labour policies, which were actually New Zealand First policies, like mm. extra police on the beat, for example. Yeah, morning, Maria. And that's one of Winston's frequent complaints. And then I went to a political meeting on, I think it was Sunday night, yeah, the Labour candidate was talking about the 1800 new police that they brought on and the New Zealand First candidate was pointing at stuff going, it was me, it was me. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that, that's the woe of small parties who get into co- coalition with the Purple Parties, as David Cunliffe called National and Labour, tellingly. Mm. That was a great interview. And I mean, you know, often people complain about Winston Peters and they complain, you know, that Reality Check Radio's pushing New Zealand first. I've spent a bit of time on Facebook saying to people, well, you know, no one tells me what to say except that I can't use the F word. You know, my thing with that is my, my dawning understanding, I guess, was that the extent to which the decision to go with Labour was a caucus decision, it, it always gets put on him, but it's one of the most democratic political parties and the most tolerant of dissenting views as evidenced by... Um, National turfing out their candidates, act turfing out theirs at the slightest whiff of anything that is against the agenda set by the media. And New Zealand First just saying, after a shaky start, I have to say, I think initially his defence of some of the things that Kirsten had retweeted was a little shaky, but he certainly stiffened that up, which was a relief. But yeah, what great candidates there are in around that level. And I guess we're at that stage where it's two weeks out from the election. If you've got to have a choice between sticking your finger up to the man voting for a party that's not polling above 2%, getting in those three candidates, say, and I mean, you know, also um, Lee Donoghue, who's consistently impressed me throughout this campaign. Well, that was one of the things that Erica said. You know, she felt that at 10% you would get all those three plus Lee. It is at that sort of pointy end of the wedge now. And certainly there is a disquiet, I think, amongst the voting public. They're not seeing or getting what it is that they want from the Purple Parties. And they're also starting to see the cracks appear with, the likes of ACT, well, if the polls are anything to to go by. So voting is open now. I haven't voted yet. I'm kind of inclined to think I might wait until until Saturday week. Have you voted yet? Yeah, I did vote yesterday. Oh, look at you. I had, my, I had my voting card thrust into my hand and I was pushed towards the polling booths by my wife. Um, I probably would have waited until election day just to just to be a little tease, but I did. I, I don't really have a lot of options here. Because mm. I want, as I've often said, I want that discussion. I want dissenting views to to be able to be hashed out reasonably in a public forum again. It makes me deeply uncomfortable. I said this to the National Party candidate at the meeting. I said, aren't you a bit uncomfortable with the homogeneity of views that are allowed in uh, National at the moment? And does it bother you at all that 
you've been selected as someone who'll just go along with that. For example, that the idea that zero carbon by 2050 is not only a good idea, but it's going to be good for New Zealand. And it doesn't it stick in your throat having to agree with that? And, you know, I mean, he's campaigning, so I said, yeah, but who knows what he actually thinks. Mm. But, and I had a talk to the Labour candidate as well. It was a lovely woman. You know, really pleasant lady, and I hope I can get together and have a chat after the election and maybe look at uh, she's not high enough on the list to get in. There are a number of Labour people that may not be <laughs> high enough on the list to get in. Grant Robertson probably isn't going to be high enough on the list to get in. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I said to her, I said to all the candidates I spoke to, have you gone and seen River of Freedom? Why not? You really should. You know, the fact you haven't is negligent of you and also said you know have you been keeping an eye on the increases in deaths the decreases in live births the increase in disability that we've seen that's kind of mirroring what's happening in the rest of the world and they're just and i guess you know there's always that danger in a bubble but they just were not it wasn't on their radar <laughs> yeah so i guess it's, it must be comforting to believe your television Mm, and it is, you know, look, we all are guilty in one way or another of being susceptible to fall into an echo chamber because an echo chamber is a, re it's like a warm, cozy blanket, isn't it? You're surrounded by people that like you and tell things, tell things that you want to hear. And it is, it is a comforting thing, but actually we're at the point now, and I think a number of us have learned that actually we need to live dangerously a little bit and, so it's because we've all gone and confined ourselves to those echo chambers and Labour have done it, National have done it, ACT have done it, that they're not hearing all of these other views. These views have all been fragmented and popped off into little spaces. I mean, I, I keep yeah. looking for the whole opposing views, Marie. You know, I read the paper, I'm, be, I'm constantly told that what I believe is misinformation. And I keep waiting to hear, well, what is misinformation? Is it misinformation that the Ministry of Statistics figures have live births decreasing by 28% since 2018? Is that misinformation? Why is that misinformation? And so on. That's, I guess, enough to make people think, oh, I don't want to believe misinformation and put them off the trail. That's exactly what it is intended to do. And I think legacy media as a whole has become its own echo chamber. They have a very, very confined set of unspoken rules. What is verboten and what is not verboten? And this is what they'll talk about. And here I was expecting, naively, that two weeks out from voting closing, that we would have some really good meaty discussion in the newspaper about what those issues are, really diving down into them. And I could not believe the utter twaddle that was there, and I even resorted to watching the political shows on, on Saturday and Sunday. Good night, Mother Brown, really. Oh, well, I mean, that was a that was a watershed moment, that Jack Tame interview, wasn't it, with Winston Peters? Oh, good and, night. And it ended in Winston Peters saying, I'm going to make a point of trying to be Minister of Broadcasting. But then it was followed up with that just soft interview with James Shaw, and yeah, no, do you think if Winston, if it had been revealed in the last couple of months that Winston Peters had lied publicly, claiming to have a degree that he hadn't completed, and then inexplicably been able to go on to do a postgraduate qualification, 
Do you think that Jack Tame wouldn't have asked a question about that if it was at Winston Peters? It, that just disappeared without trace, like the NIWA data that indicated was, storms were getting less frequent. It was the juxtaposition between the two interviews that yeah. was so jarring. The transition between the two, Tame obviously went into his interview with Peters with a very clear objective in mind, which was to get that gotcha soundbite. And he was mm. like a fox terrier and he Russian just... Terrier. Oh, yeah, and he just would not let go. And, I mean, what did Peter say at one point? Calm down and take a Valium. And then you go to the fellatiary effort that uh, followed on afterwards. It was like, what? Mm. I couldn't believe it. Imagine if you had gone after Jacinda Ardern like that or, or Grant Robertson and said, hey, Grant, you've borrowed $100 billion. You know, if you gave me $100 billion, I could lift tens of thousands of children out of poverty. You know, I mean, you, you're saying you've done all this. It's easier to do that if you borrow $100 billion. It's much harder to achieve as little as you've achieved with that amount of money. I don't know how you do it. Where'd you hide it? Neither do I. Now, I'm going to dive in. We'll dive into the sure stuff in a wee bit. I just want to cover off broadly some of the other elements and one of the other themes first before we do. And that was, and both you and I mentioned it, I just couldn't get over There was no talk of really major issues. Uh, the Labor rolled out the rainbow policy. Yeah, more turns and glitter. Excellent. It turns out that uh, if Chris Hipkins uh, was a transvestite, his name would be Lippy Chippy. Lippy Chippy. There you go. And he'd be, the, he'd be a dancing queen. He's got his own issues at the moment. I mean, we've tested positive to COVID. And then I heard or I saw an, uh, an article that he's bewildered. He's a little bewildered because he's kept up to date. He's had all his boosters. He's been a good and boy. the flu injection. He just doesn't quite know how he got it. I've not. I know uh, quite a few vaccinated people who've, who've had COVID more than once. I don't know anyone who's unvaccinated who's had it more than once. Just saying. Yeah. Well, what I want to know is who still does rat tests? Are they still a thing? Obviously, they must be for a certain I subset can't of people. Them too. Anywho, so the other theme was in terms of the Susan or sort of a threat, a veil of these poor politicians who, who are all under now the spotlight and the pressure of the snowflakes is beginning to manifest itself. And there were all these pieces and articles talking about the the threats that they were suffering under. I mean, you had, uh, I mean, we talked about it the other week, Willow Jean Prime having verbal abuse slung at her at a Northland or Whangarei yeah. meeting and security guard being concerned. The Greens made me laugh. Uh, they complained of verbal racism and misogynistic comments. To Pasi Māori, abuse of note and apparent, apparently a home invasion slash vandalism, depending on which story slash you read. Damage fence. Slash damage fence. The Nats claim, Luxon claims that they have got had made police reports around gangs, burglaries and a dog attack. The Labour have also said one of their candidates have, has claimed that they were slapped. Uh, in New Zealand first, well, no one has piped up about any issues there other than the survey results that came out, business results survey, and they were saying that New Zealand First voters appeared to be the ones that were most fed up with what well, was going they on didn't in the country just at the say that. They said there was a ridiculous article by Craig Hoyle in the Sunday Star Times he basically was saying that this is the longest bow I've seen, actually. He said, in another twist, New Zealand First supporters report more nightmares than other voters on average, although Wilson cautions that it's not statistically significant. Nightmares are actually quite an important experience in the context of well-being. 
Nightmares can be both a predictor of mental distress and a symptom of it. Unsurprisingly, people who report frequent nightmares also report poorer quality sleep in general. Poor old New Zealand First supporters, eh? Again, the column inches. This is the sort of thing that could be written by AI, isn't it? Maybe that's why the the news is getting harder and harder to read. Maybe. Well, it could be. I mean, there has been concerns in newsrooms that journalists would be replaced by AI. Well, there have been various rumours rattling around, haven't they? There has uh, been various uh, rumours rattling around. I got a Twitter ban for making that learn to code joke once about reporters getting laid off because they said, well, you know, these factory workers are just going to have to learn to code. And so when they got laid off, everyone made learn to code jokes and they were very offensive. And I don't take any joy in people losing their jobs particularly, but actually I do. So, okay, this is going to be a nice segue. Did you hear about the Epsom debate this week? No. Right. So in the Epsom debate this week, because of course the the gloves have come off and there's no cup of tea deal anymore in Epsom. So National are actively going for the seat with David yep, Seymour. I knew as that. Is, yep, yep. And as is David Seymour's put Brooke Van Velden over with Ntamaki with Simon O'Connor. However, in the debate, uh, a huge applause was held for David Seymour when he got up and he made the claim that he felt that if ACT got their policy across the line in coalition uh, negotiations, that 15,000 public service uh, workers will be out of their jobs by Christmas. And that got quite a rapturous applause. Now, that upset the Labour candidate, Camilla Balich, quite a bit. And she then got up and said, Quite, you know, quite minorly actually. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be applauding that number of people. These people have families, they have jobs, and you're saying that these people, you know, it's not good that you're applauding these people could be out of work by Christmas. And it's like, well, Camilla, that's a bit rich coming from you as a Labour Party candidate, isn't yeah. it, darling? Considering it was around this time that mm, a similar number to this across multiple industries in 2021 were faced with exactly the same issue. And you guys didn't Those public servants made their choice. You know, they didn't have to blow out the expenditure on the public service by 80% and then deliver less for it. Bruce Cottrell made the very, very, very good point. And and I thought this when I was watching the leaders' debate. Luxon should have made the point, hey, look, the private sector is short-staffed and people who have had a career in the public sector have got very good skills around uh, processes and they've got good often good ethics about what you do and what you don't do it's probably quite good to flush some people who have had that experience in the public sector through the private sector and bruce cottrell made that point very well he said instead of an argument about whether or not nationals policies imply public sector job losses how about a discussion on what those government employees could do be doing instead Across this country, we are desperately short of people. We need teachers, nurses, truck drivers, and builders. We need hospitality workers and more people in retail. Despite almost 200,000 people on the job seeker benefit, I know of companies with 40 or 50 vacancies. Mm, but and, you know why, um, the, you know why the, that will never happen, though? The feed that they're given in that trough is so great that actually being faced with the reality of retail sector, of all of those other jobs, that actually the people in the real world... <laughs> Where yeah. you live, you, it's, you it's a different story. Two hundred thousand dollars a year for that skill set, buddy, because we oh. can't make four hundred thousand dollars or six hundred thousand dollars from what you do, exactly. which used to be being able to spend two million dollars and not have any accountability for results. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. 
So that's why it will never happen. Bruce Cottrell was more generous than me. He said, instead of cutting them loose, how about we keep paying them for a year or more while they learn new skills? It's like, yeah, Bruce, come on. He did also go on as well and talk about investment in the oil and gas industry. And this was interesting. I had, I'd missed this in previous news reports. Recent released research tells us that Guyana, a small country in the northern part of South America, with just 800,000 people, is the world's fastest growing economy in 2023. Their projected growth rate is 38% for the year, according to recent GDP forecasts by the International Monetary Fund. Their secret? Oil production and export. On the surface, it would appear that they have a natural source base to and game to play with. As much as Greenies would hate it, rebuilding our ability to generate oil, gas and coal revenue as a potential game changer for our economy in long term. Yeah, instead of importing dirty Indonesian coal. The tough thing about the profoundly anti-human nature of the zero carbon agenda, you know, that whole you are the carbon they want to reduce kind of uh, thing, is that most I guess the level of ingratitude about the uh, students who protested all the while, you know, holding their oil and gas manufactured phones, and they've got no idea how much energy they use in a developed economy. No. You know, we use so much. It comes back down to that idea of whitewater kayaking. You know, you've got to paddle towards uncertainty to maintain forward momentum and give you maneuverability. If we just are dead in the water because we've cut our access to energy, we're um, very vulnerable to the fickle winds of fate. You know how I said last week I've been reading The Sad Guide to Happiness? I got to a section this week and it was talking about the importance of having headwinds, basically, in your life to obtain happiness. So if you get everything all your own way and everything is safe and everything is awesome, that ultimately will be detrimental to your happiness. You've got to have, as you said, those rapids down the river to potentially navigate to allow you to, to create resilience, which in turn helps you appreciate what it is that you do have, which will then lead you to happiness. I've got a theory about this, Marie. <laughs> Excellent. We talk a lot about the impact on climate from our emissions of CO2. I think that's vastly overstated. I think what's vastly underrated and underexamined is the detrimental effect that having easy energy without a corresponding improvement in our moral compass, the effect that that's had on uh, the human condition generally. You know, we're just used to having this comet tail of plastic shit streaming out behind us and just carelessly throwing things in the rubbish. And, you know, one day we'll probably look at glass bottles and just be astonished that we used to just use them once and chuck them away. And it's also allowed a an alienation from nature that I think is really starting to bite at us now, it's separated us from knowing what the phase of the moon is and what's ripe at different times. So rather than celebrating, you know, the arrival of apples and enjoying their sweetness, we just eat whatever in a kind of a mindless way that's very unappreciative. And I think it's it's really been detrimental to our souls. Mm. Well, it's that, dis yeah, as you said, a disconnection to the cycle of life, isn't it? Mm. And I think by reconnecting with that consciously, a lot of the emissions and the waste would take care of themselves. Yeah. And if you look at the, I guess, tokenistic things that have been done, I think in an OIA, an Official Information Act request that 
really should be done is uh, on any of their trips overseas, have any of uh, Labour's top politicians or government officials asked any of the top five countries for dumping plastic into rivers in the ocean? Were any of those countries officially asked to stop doing it? And if not, where does that leave us when we're holding a paper bag with the ass falling out of it, looking at all our plastic-wrapped groceries rolling around on the pavement? Yeah, there are hypocrisies everywhere. I'm going to cycle back to those interviews on the weekend because I really, I mean, there's a reason why I don't watch them very often because I just get really grumpy. Uh, I'd also watch, I mean, the Rebecca Wright one with Winston, gee whiz, the head-to-head between Jan Tanetti and Erica Stanford. I thought Erica shone, mm. absolutely shone. It shows why she is one of the rising stars within the National Party, at least. Jan Tanetti, yeah. I mean, she's all over the show she at the best of times. She lunch, but- didn't she? It was literally like the year 13 seventh former sitting there trying to have a discussion with a petulant toddler who wouldn't sit on the mat. Mm. It was bad. Anywho. I'll tell you what I really enjoyed about that interview is that she is appropriately annoyed at the enormous and just terribly sad cost of that failure of the education system. It was good to see that passion there. Mm. Yeah. And she was also very focused on outcome as well, because as we know, Labor is measuring its success by what it spends, not measuring its success on its outcomes. And she was very focused on that. The reality of it is, is this education fix, this has been something that's been deteriorating for a long time. You've brought it up before around the unionisation of our education system, as I think one of the big issues. Well, and also the other thing I like to bring up is the potential that it suits politicians just fine having a population that's incapable of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, that, and that's the really horrifying, uh, maybe long bow to draw, but, you know, if you really wanted to fix it, you'd prioritise it and fix it. When you're whining about poor health outcomes for Māori, ultimately you're talking about poor education outcomes. If you're talking about high rates of incarceration, ultimately you're talking about the failure of the education system as well. Yeah. Once I'd finished watching the Winston interview with Jack Tame, I then moved on to James Shaw. And as I was recovering from the juxtaposition between the two interviews, thinking, good grief, you know, am I the only person seeing this? This little clangor about six minutes in pops out from James Shaw, and I actually had to go back on replay and re-listen to it because, as you often say, it's the things they say out loud. Yeah. I was like, sure, no, surely he didn't say that. So this this is, this is what was said. For what sure. advice have you had about the likelihood of capital flight of, of wealthy people or business operators, entrepreneurs taking their money to other countries? Yes, yeah, so we factored in 25% avoidance into our wealth tax calculation Treasury, when they did this work for Grant Robertson over the summer, factored in about 15% from memory. So we've actually factored in a much more conservative... Sorry, to be clear, I'm talking about capital flight. I'm talking about people who say, you know what, actually, if we've got a wealth tax in New Zealand, we've got a 33% corporate tax rate, we're going to go elsewhere. We're going to take our money elsewhere. That is avoidance, right? That that is avoidance. No, but I mean, they they permanently move elsewhere. They They go and invest in other countries where they have lower tax rates. Yeah, that's... What advice have you had about that? Well, that, that is avoidance. So Treasury factored in about a 15% rate for that. Mm. Uh, we factored in 25%. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and it's you, just, you know, this is where they've got that socialist bullshit where one person's just like another person. And so if you lose 15% of these people, well, it's just like, you know, there's plenty more. I mean, as I've said before, I know a lot of really wealthy people and they're pretty singular. You don't necessarily want to be them, but you can't help but admire their just laser focus and determination and slight mental illness. So for listeners, if you were listening to that and you were thinking, what? What is he going on about? So to paraphrase, essentially, if the Greens get their way and they get their wealth tax across the line, and there are two parties strongly advocating for this wealth tax, one is the Greens, the other is to party Māori, right? They have factored in that in their belief, 25% or one in four people that fit into that category will just leave, get up and leave New Zealand. The consequences of that are massive. Now, the nice thing is, is our little friend Chanel provided us with some figures. So obviously he'd been talking to the, the green PR machine. His entire piece was based around the wealth tax. And he, you know, I mean, he talks about New Zealand being one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Our country has enough wealth to ensure everyone has the necessities, yet we don't. That is the result of political choices that overwhelmingly favour the wealthy to garner more wealth while people in lower incomes pay higher taxes. The wealthiest 10% of New Zealanders hoard, hoard, hoard. 50% of New Zealand wealth, while the bottom 50% only have 2%. The wealthiest families pay a medium effective tax rate of 9.4% compared to 20.2% for middle wealth New Zealanders. Conservative parties have portrayed attempts to legalise wealth tax as jealousy. I'm not jealous. I'm angry. And I, like many other students like me, pay a higher proportion of our pay to tax and barely get by while New Zealanders have become a tax haven for the wealthiest. Now, this is where the thresholds. I know. So, this is where the thresholds come in. What exactly does does wealthy mean? He Mm. tells us. The Greens are campaigning to introduce a 2.5% wealth tax on net assets. Couples who jointly own assets will pay wealth tax on assets above 4 million threshold and less mortgages and other debts. Those individuals' assets above 2 million. In the current inflationary climate, if you're a homeowner or even if you're, say, someone like a, so at four million, if you have been fiscally prudent, you own your own home, you may also have a couple of rental properties, depending on where they are and they get valuations, that net four million as a couple or two million as an individual is not a big stretch. What happens if you're actually a shareholder or an owner in a business and you're self-employed? How does that get valued? And well, James Shaw got asked that as well, didn't he? He's, he's he did. Like, well, you know, we've got to nail that down and work out who's owning the trusts and the trusters. The, yeah, the trusters. Yes, exactly. And he was very, very, he was very opaque on this. Now, this is my concern, right? This is my concern. I have then also seen the numbers, ASM's put out numbers we talked about several months ago about the flight that we have currently in the medical system and the number of doctors and people leaving our medical system in droves to go elsewhere, mostly across the ditch, because they get paid better, the conditions are better, the system is nowhere near as broken as what it is here. Can you imagine what will happen to a lot of those doctors that haven't taken the communist slash socialist pill 
And it would be amazing how a bit of pill that can be when, you know, they're still doing it for the system. They still have belief. They're still there trying yeah. to fight it. And then it's they get pinged the even money. further. It's not even the money often, is it? It's it's the morale. Oh, just every single time, uh, you know, you end up with gulags and you end up with people getting executed because they wear glasses and, you know, it, it, and you can, the thing I've, I've said on more than one occasion is as a keen student, student of the history of human awfulness to other humans the thing that unsettles me most is i can hear it in these guys and that's even before we get into the aspect of philanthropy which you know so many things in new zealand rely on the generosity of others so this station being one of it i mean we we're built on Small donors by the people for the people, and, um, and it's without that generosity. Time by us as well, yeah, and, and you know, so there's so much goodness out there. But you know, you look at those key people in in that top group, that top grouping. They are the people that fund the arts. Well, they pay ninety percent of the tax, don't they? The top twenty five taxpayers. I think the top twenty five percent of of families are net taxpayers plus. The, the, it's it's only the top twenty five percent of families that that pay more than their actual share of tax that they consume. So w- when when these guys are talking about how stingy these wealthy people are, they're talking about people who pay a hundred percent of the tax. Nearly, if they're talking about, well, probably it's it's not a hundred percent if it's um, limited to people with net wealth over two million dollars, but it's a pretty high proportion. But see, that net wealth over $2 million, that's the additional tax wealth tax rate that they're going to get on that. That doesn't include the 39% that they're already getting pinged by for being over, what is it, $70,000 a year? Yeah. Well, they're looking at their assets. I mean, it's a regressive thing because socialism is a tacit admission that the government's pants at running companies once they um, nationalise them. They pretend to pay the workers and the workers pretend to work kind of thing. So socialism's going downstream from that and standing outside the factory gate with a cudgel demanding menaces like a mafia don. And so what you're hearing with this, well, we wants as we wants as the capital is a regressive move to think, well, that's our capital. It's It's a very communist impulse. Yeah. But it's probably too thick to actually understand that. I doubt very much whether he's uh, read the Gulag Archipelago or get cross even having to take that guy seriously. I mean, they have been exceptionally conspicuous by their absence. Part of the reason I watched the interview is I knew he was going to be on. And I thought, great, because they've been missing in action this whole yeah. campaign. It's felt like that to me. Two little satellite dish faces beaming self-righteously out at us. And and then that's what comes out of his mouth. And I was thinking, oh, now I kind of know why you hide. Now, I did actually feel a little bit sorry for Christopher Luxon this week because the media coming out claiming that he has pulled out of the stuff leaders debate when it's kind of like, ah, no, no, I think you'll find that the Hipkins is out because of the COVID rescheduling in the final week of campaigning. Well, they also offered them a debate between the deputy leaders and they didn't want that, which is would have been good television watching Calvin Davis get eviscerated by uh, Nicola Willis. Willis. Yeah, no, she would have been. And I, yeah, all over our Calvin, bless his heart. He's a debater our Calvin is not. Also too, Winston popped his hand up and said, well, you know, if you've rescheduled the date, I'll be there. Chris can't make it. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go tomorrow. 
No, no takers on that. And then I see uh, our favourite libertarian knot, uh, David Seymour, decided if you can't beat him, copy him, and announced that he would be open to public submissions for an expanded Royal COVID Commission inquiry. The guy, and I pointed this out on uh, on the political panel last week, whenever he talks about the benefit of having a strong economy, the first thing out of his mouth is always, we get better pharmaceuticals, which is pretty far down on the list of reasons I li- I'd like the economy to be working better. I'd, I always wonder, you know, if that somehow feeds into his um, asinine attitudes towards the uh, mandatory experimental gene therapy and you know, whether that's somehow a factor in his sudden volunteering to manage um, the terms of reference. Talking about Luxon being persecuted before, you know, there's this ongoing annoyance that I'm not uh, not producing his um, workings for his tax. This is another thing I said on the political panel. I do wonder whether the reason he's not producing them is because he's expecting BlackRock to do in New Zealand what they've done in the States. And what they've done in the States is to buy up every family home they can get their hands on to the point where by 2030, it's projected at the current rate they're acquiring them, they're going to own something like 60% of family homes in the US. He is an avowed globalist, and I wonder if he's had a meeting where they've said, hey, look, we can put some money into an economy like that. Watch this space. Yeah, he has got that uh, foreign buyers policy on the table. Yeah. So, mm. Yeah, people, everyone's mystified, but he's saying, oh, no, it's going to work. That is one, I think, that potentially if New Zealand First is in coalition negotiations, that could be a handbrake policy. Well, that's going to screw his books because he's only $800 million ahead of Labour by 2026, isn't he? Mm. That was a very, very disconcerting part of Claire Trevitt's, um <sighs> article, Winston is the price you pay for your tax caginess in the Saturday Weekend Herald. And this is just a low watermark where she says they're not that different, but the way they're going to be better is finance spokeswoman Nicola Willis is trying to make it look better by saying Finance Minister Grant Robertson will blow his budget anyway. So she's saying, well, we might look the same, but they would have screwed up worse than us. So it's pretty low bar. Yeah. Yeah, the cynicism was dripping off the page. And there was a lot of cynicism from many of the regular opinion writers. I did I did actually laugh at the irony of Ali Moore going on about improving productivity by dropping everybody for a four-day week, and that was such a good idea. And this is after years of, I mean, she's trying to protect that laptop lifestyle, those girls running around on their lolo lemon, and, you know, having, I mean, you know, so four-day weekends at home and because their productivity would be so much better. Well, if you get an extra day off, men spend 30% more time looking after their children and then in brackets, gender equality. Yeah. As if men don't want to look after their kids. Oh. Where do you want to go to next? Because I know where, I think we probably I think should. we both know where we're heading. Yeah, we both know where we're heading. So buckle on and listeners because it's not getting any more cheerful. Because both Marty and I did actually dive into the supplement sections. And when I say the supplementary sections, we're talking the magazines that come with these weekend papers. And there was an article that just screamed out at both of us, and it's called Draining the Disinformation Swamp by Joanna Wayne. Yeah, it's almost a press release for the 
disinformation project and quotes Kate Hanna as, as if she's a serious commentator rather than a Marxist who with some sort of narcissistic problem where she does a lot of projection. We both read this and yeah, wasted a lot, used a lot of highlighter, and and I had a lot of head shaking and and brow furrowing. Kate Hanna, founder and director of the Disinformation Project, and this is what I found interesting: founded in February 2020 to rebunk a tsunami of COVID nineteen boulder dash that hit our shores before the virus did. Now think about the timing of this, people, for just one second. February 2020 to pre-bunk, gosh, they obviously had a crystal ball, didn't they? Yeah. And how did they know what was going to be bolted dash? Well, considering that every all of this was unfolding for everybody at the same time. The whole thing was a head shaker, wasn't it? I mean, I've, yeah, as you say, I mean, I've got a lot underlined here, but just that her absolute surety and the goodness of government is touching for its naivety but alarming because that government's paying her to write this crap or at least project it all over the paper. And as you say, the projection's strong in this one because once you've decided to believe something, your self-identity is tied into that being a rational, sensible, intelligent decision. So you can't question it. The difference between her and us is I would love to be wrong. I look hopefully in a variety of areas for signs that I'm... I'm wrong and I hope and pray that I am. Whereas probably a worse realisation for someone who has the comfort of believing their television to find the uh, awful truth. Well, it gets better just a little bit further down. In the final countdown to October 14 general election, Hannah talked to Canvas about how to discern fact from fiction by asking the right questions. Are you ready for this, listeners? Who holds the power? Who's telling the story? Who stands to benefit? Why should you trust them? And always ask who's funding it. That's right, Kate. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'll skip right to the end, although we'll come back to the middle. There was one good point she made, you know. She said, you know, when you're reading an article, it's worth, uh, if it's someone who's written with it, about a range of diverse topics from climate change to vaccinations and chemtrails, it's unlikely they're an expert on all of these things. So she basically, you know, advocates checking out your sources, which is sensible and which we do. And I mean, Cam Slater is always very good at that. Sometimes someone will post something on a chat group and he'll say, nah, that, that's not true. He's very good at checking sources generally. Yeah, we have to consciously go off platform and do some work for ourselves. But the work for herself is just to call anyone with a conflicting point of view disinformation malinformation and there's a helpful uh, helpful little glossary at the bottom. end there yeah disordered thinking telling us the difference between disinformation misinformation and malinformation true information used with ill intent that's always an interesting one isn't it it is always an interesting one. For those that sort of are trying to get their head around this, because this is another one of those James Shaw, oh my goodness, they said this out loud moments, <laughs> this article, is when you've been playing around in the cultural sandpit that I've been playing around with for all these years, one of the things that you soon learn is whatever it is that they aspire to be or accuse you of, they're guilty of themselves, right? Mm. It's one of the sort of golden rules of 
figuring out the double speak that goes on with all people like the Kate Hannas of the Disinformation Project. She talks about the polls, and as we mentioned before, there's all these stories about how fractious things are for our political candidates and the media being potentially attacked and, and how it's no longer safe for them out there. And, of course, they're completely missing the point that the reason you have all these people that are deeply unhappy is because, uh, funnily enough, you're not allowing them to ask those questions that Kate Mm. is so keen that they ask because the questions come with caveats, right? So this time there are three key factors. This is talking about the election. One is a significant increase in the likelihood of political violence with security issues. Party leaders who have been disrupted, where particularly candidates who are new, who are younger, who are women, who are rainbow community, who are indigenous or people of colour, really need to be very careful about how they go about their campaigning. And this is a classic critical theory position. One, you must stand on your identity, and two, you must stake your claim in the oppression victimhood Olympics. Yeah. It's very important that you do that. Yeah, and she sort of talks about, you know, how Ardern had been the misogyny directed towards Jacinda Ardern, which went from everyday public misogyny, calling her Cindy and the pretty little communist, disinformation about her sexuality, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then she basically characterizes anyone who disagrees with her as the disinformation community and says, and so instead of reasonable, thoughtful, respectful discourse, we're seeing adversarial divisive discourse. And again, that's the point. So we're a disinformation community who are actually seeking to be adversarial divisive. Yeah. Very sensitive about anyone um, characterizing her side in any way but then just glibly and you know there's the the one that just jumped out at me was saying that ideas around an indigenous voice to parliament and co-governance were compared to conceptualizations from south africa around white genocide so she's basically calling the rape and murder and incitement to murder conceptualizations that's interesting she's also saying that you know people are saying that carbon policies are going to lead to poverty, and that's wrong. But that doesn't really tie in with Germany's 500% increase in power prices. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, this, oh God, I tell you what, I need to go to the chiropractor after this well, with the, num- the amount of head shaking I did. This is not targeting the left or right, but she never gets around to talking. She's saying it's not a left wing or right wing thing, particularly, although she does characterize. There's an international network of far-right organizations funding these. And then further down, she said a lot of the funding for the anti-campaign has come from conservative American or European organizations. So she's characterizing conservative organizations as far-right. Yeah, it was was really um, quite something. It really was quite something. One of the little sections I highlighted as well was, is disinformation being produced organically within New Zealand or is it largely imported? And she talked about the firehose approach, which was something that Steve Bannon, who was Trump's uh, chief strategist, used to talk about. At the same time, the distinction between state and non-state actors in disinformation spaces is a little spurious. It can have originated from a state actor, but the people disseminating it are groups and individuals who share those ideas. One of the things that's happening 
in this explosion of disinformation around the world is that there is now a framework for everyone. In the past, you might have heard someone talking or reading something online and just not identified with that person. Now, they are yoga mums and sensible sounding people alongside those who are much more radical. Anyone can be susceptible to the narrative from someone who looks and sounds and feels like us. The old feelia, man. And she never quite gets around to talking about that the left-right paradigm is is disappearing now. Yeah. And now it's down to establishment and anti-establishment. Nationalism, and globalism, yeah. And tyranny, nationalism and globalism. And that would have made the whole thing make sense. But she never goes there and she doesn't go there quite deliberately, I think, because she doesn't want to characterise herself as on the side of tyranny and globalism and... Um, but as you always say, it's always good to talk about the different facets and the colour of the glitter because at the end of the day, no one really wants to get into the shit sandwich that's underneath, do they? Mm. But, I mean, I wonder how much money she's still getting paid. Well, I know that they were doing some softball RFPs a while ago to keep them functioning and operating, which they did. I think there was an RFP around tracking disinformation within the election campaign. So hold hold on to your... Hold there were some astonishing people, things report. formed during that whole early COVID thing where they were really driving the uh, mandates. I don't have the Māori name for it, but there was an ethics committee that was formed. And I had a real deep dive into that. It was astonishing what was in it because I, in all the information I scoured, there was no discussion about the ethics of giving pregnant women an experimental gene therapy that had been tested on 20 mice or given children the same thing by offering them electronics and KFC and suspending informed consent and body, bodily autonomy. There was nothing like that. The Ethics Committee talked about things like how there could be some pluses come out of the deterioration, the prosperity of New Zealand and that it might drive some equity. It had a guy who was a professor at Massey who'd been, who was an East German, who was bemoaning how after the Berlin Wall fell, how people were competing with each other for who had the best consumer goods. And it was just introduced this sounding quite wistful for the days of the Stasi and the secret police and one in three Germans being an informer. It was astonishing. Yeah, there are many things that are very, very astonishing. On the good news front, there have been a few little cracks within the legacy space in terms of information leaking out there. And one of them I heard last week was Duncan Garner, bless his little heart, in his daily podcast that he does Monday through Friday. He interviewed Asim Mahotra. For a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people that live in our space, a lot of this information is not necessarily new. We, we are aware of it. We've read it. We've kept it to play with it. But, you know, a lot of the go-alongs, get-alongs haven't. They're busy. They're leading their lives. For them, the entire sort of element of COVID is, and is long since gone. But to hear somebody as credentialed as Dr. Mahotra, who was out here for the NZDSOS West conference, who's been doing a speaking tour around New Zealand, he chatted with Duncan before he left the country, to actually have a conversation of that calibre within the mainstream fold. And he spoke very, very clearly and concisely about all the wider issues, not just COVID, but the influence and effect that Big Pharma have on both regulation and what controls medications and access to most people, yeah. I thought was outstanding. 
Well, and the WHO, the extent to which it's pharma, it's funded by big pharma, is, it should give any anyone pause for thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I said before, I, I saw that very sweaty interview where Garner was obviously a bit intoxicated. And, I, you know, you for all that I said before, well, you know, I'm not entirely unhappy that some of these people are losing their jobs. I don't feel necessarily as sympathetic to them as I would to the people who got mandated out of their jobs. And I look at some of those reporters and I think, man, you've added an extra bottle of wine to your daily routine just to kind of, just to shut that little voice down, the voice mm. of your conscience when you're just lying your ass off in a way that's hurting New Zealanders. Well, I just wondered, there was a little interaction between him and his producer and his producer said to him, oh, you know, how many boosters have you had? Where are you going to get your next booster? And he said, oh, no, I've only just had the two. He said, I saw Inga Tuigamala two weeks before he died, and then that was it for me. And he said, and then he followed it up a little later with, I, I know people close to me who have died. See, imagine, mm. as you said, he's in that situation where he's a few the bells. The horror. Mm. It'll be so, so again, again, it's you know, it sounds like we're asserting something, but before, before we get to that, it really is just, hey, let's have the debate. When the debate's being squashed, that's the first problem. It's not not what's right or wrong uh, as a primary thing. I think it's worth just reiterating those words from Kate Hanna again to discern fact from fiction by asking the right questions. Who holds the power? Who's telling the story? Who stands to benefit? Why should you trust them? And always ask who's funding it. Yeah, she's rather hoisted on her own petard there, isn't she, Busky? Now, do, you, do you want to do something else first before we go to feedback? Well, we you know, the only thing I did bring up was that in this blizzard of paper, I did have that little article at the, at the back of the Sunday Star Times, experts ask if climate change is a bad thing for democracy. And this is, again, check the sources, check the funding. This is a, a, a innocuous-seeming article saying... The, the intro reads, instability driven by climate change could threaten democracies in the future, even though representative governments are best equipped to provide solution, experts gathered at an annual conference have argued. So what it's basically saying is rising global temperatures and an acceleration of migration in parts of the world have sustained concerns that governments in the upcoming decades could turn more autocratic to retain control of increasingly scarce resources and deal with civil unrest. In the long term, that would be an a bad idea, argued Anne Florini, a fellow at the New American Political Reform Program. Now, I looked up Anne Florini, World Economic Forum, whether uh, she's a trustee or she, she has got her own little section in there. The uh, New America Political Reform Program, the director, Mark Schmidt, is a former director of the Soros Open Society. So what this is, this is kind of this pearl clutching. Oh, you know, if things get really bad with climate change, we're going to have to suspend democracy. So it's kind of saying it as in, oh, this could happen, it would be bad, but it's just kind of just warming people up. If you take Kate Hanna's advice, it's probably not in the direction she'd like you to take it. She'd, she'd probably far rather you said, well, if it's open society, if it's George Soros, well, it's probably all good. But yeah, there, there are plenty of things if you do put that lens on, think, well, who's funding it and to what end and what do they want because they tell you. Often the paper's full of all sorts of bowel-spasming, spine-chilling news. 
that's going to clash too badly with you. What's your good news article that having snorted oh, MDMA off the Ranfurly shield and then broken it on someone's head, you can oh, get it? God, I know. Uh, yeah, you haven't been caught, though, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. No one's I suspected. haven't. No, I haven't. No, my good news story, there was a great news story in, I can't remember, I'm not going to dive into the newspaper there, but I've got it, um, Night of the Dolphin. I spoke to Danger Rowe uh, last week, week before, last week, and it was a project that he's been working on. It is now out. It's in all the main places that you find podcasts, and it was a really lovely story about how they came together and um, everything that I talked about with Dane. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to Night of the Dolphin yet, it's 30 minutes of delightful joy and fun. And yeah, there was a story. Um, hold on. It was in. This is where it would be so handy to have just 5% of um, the $25 million or $27 million increase to Radio New Zealand's funding, eh? just so we could do show notes so people could uh, properly have the links. In the Sunday Star Times by Sapir Mayron, it is why family, church, and friends are right, uh, key to roasting South Aucklanders, and it's all about, um, oh, right. yeah, how the Night of the Dolphin came about. So I was really thrilled to I see to see that. that. Happened. Read it. Yeah, having having spoken today, that was my sort of happy story for the week. Hey, the one last thing too before we get before we get to feedback, I don't do this very often, but in the Weekend Herald, since it's broadsheet. Um, I pulled out this very, very large full-page ad from the Taxpayers' Union, Robbo's Removal Company. Yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? I know, I know. I think, uh, you know, sponsored by James Shaw and his 25% of avoidance. Anyway, I digress. Okay, feedback. 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 Okay, Marie and Marty, love your wisdom. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Uh, we're too soon old and too late wise. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Marie and Marty, from, 30, from a 34-year-old experience mandate teacher who has just managed to battle away back to the new permanent job at a new school while maintaining my personal integrity and personal freedom doing it. It's great to listen to you and have the freedom to listen to RCR go well from Andrew. Thank you, Good Andrew. for you, Andrew. To Marie, wanted to praise your Media Matters show with Marty. Love it. Just listened to a couple of recent replays. I heard Marty saying that he would keep speaking truth and make sure of his family's needs. Good call, Marty. And speaking of family, my wife, five kids, aged between 8 and 16 years, and I have so far avoided the needle. My oldest at 16 and is quite keen to get married ASAP, and as a concerned and caring dad, father-in-law, and potentially grandfather, do you think it is going to chase away too many potential in-laws if I ask them their VAC status? None in sight at the moment. But with the birth rates declining, is it too out there to try and hook up with the unjabbed? Really good question. Marie, it's slightly humour to say, but it's very serious also. Firstly, infertility, but also the nightmare scenario where DNA has been altered, hereditary DNA. Keep up the enlightening research and info that is Media Matters, and that's from Nick. Yeah, Nick, I know I've got teenage sons as well. I think they would be mortified to know if uh, we were talking about these things <laughs> too ahead of time. But I have to say with the cluster of friends that we've got, there is lots of discussion around uh, the potential futures and what may bring for them in the future. So thanks for that feedback. This is from Cheryl. I love your show. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It gives me hope. I was listening to one of your talks about River of Freedom. One of the things the film didn't capture so well, unfortunately, was the authentic Kiwi spirit. As a protester for 15 days, locals were taking people home to have hot showers, a bed, doing people's laundry, babysitting kids. 
there was an incredible amount, like massive amount, of donations of clothing, bedding, blow-up mattresses, tents, dark tape, hot water bottles, wet weather gear, whatever someone needed, it would turn up. My neighbour in our camping area came back from the admin tent with a roll of carpet so we could make a little lounge to have breaks since all of us were sleeping in our cars. Still have so many heartfelt stories that needed to be captured. I get the impression that there was so much footage they were drowning in it with that film. I really oh, do. It would have been, yeah. What the, that person's saying is is dead right. There's a, a, a Kiwi spirit and probably a human spirit of helping each other. And uh, as I've often said, it, it's it's weakened to the point of almost being snuffed out by the government growing like cancer between us. Mm. I remember reading a, uh, an article about a book about the Waiwika Gorge where my great-great-great-grandparents had a farm where my grandfather grew up. And there was a story about some guy getting caught, uh, one of the Traffords, getting caught, you know, in a torrential downpour and, uh, you know, no phones, but said, oh, you know, called into the Gibsons and, uh, you know, they gave me a bed for a night and fed me and sent me along in the morning in a fresh set of clothes. And, you know, it's just what you did. And, and imagine what we could do if we didn't have that giant vampire squid of government, let's quote the... Uh, that memorable phrase in the Rolling Stone magazine, jabbing its blood funnel and anything that smells like money wrapped around a human face. There you go. Now, this is from Shelley. Marty's quips on Ms. Vaz's haircuts and views are becoming a weekly feature in Media Matters. It brings lightness and humours to the show. Keep up the good work from Shelley. We haven't actually said much about old Darth Vance this week because she sort of, I think she lost a mojo. She sort of was jump, jumping down the, um, oh dear, Luxie has to talk to Winston yeah, well, I mean, she also changed her photo <laughs> and softened her fringe in quite a coquettish kind of way and smiled. You know, it's a frequent admonishment that men shouldn't say to uh, to women, oh, come on, love, give us a smile. But, uh, you know, she did and it's working for her. I know. It's, it's softer, softened the Darth Vance. So there we go. Gosh, thank you again, as always, uh, Marty, joining me for Media Matters. And, of course, next week is going to be a big one, last one before the election and then of course we'll be into the post-mortems after that. Where does the time go? Fun Time flies when you're having fun. Thank you again. I hope you have a good rest of week. Yeah, same to you Maria and thanks everyone for listening. It's great to know that there are people out there uh, getting something out of it and uh, God defend New Zealand. Yeah, and remember if you want to send us some feedback, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Woke News of the Week is here next on RCR. Matewa. You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio.